0: The Cosmos, The Microcosm, Delivered in New York, 26th January, 1896. The human mind naturally wants to get outside, to peer out of the body, as it were, through the channels of the organs. The eye must see, the ear must hear, the senses must sense the external world. Unnaturally, the beauties and sublimities of nature captivate the attention of man first. The first questions that arose in the human soul were about the external world. The solution of the mystery was asked of the sky, of the stars, of the heavenly bodies, of the earth, of the rivers, of the mountains, of the ocean. And in all ancient religions we find traces of how the groping human mind at first caught at everything external. There was a river god, a sky god, a cloud god, a rain god. Everything external, all of which we now call the powers of nature, became metamorphosed, transfigured into wills, into gods, into heavenly messengers. As the question went deeper and deeper, these external manifestations failed to satisfy the human mind, and finally the energy turned inward, and the question was asked of man's own soul. From the macrocosm, the question was reflected back to the microcosm. From the external world, the question was reflected to the internal from analysing the external nature, man is led to analyse the internal. This questioning of the internal man comes with a higher state of civilization, with a deeper insight into nature, with a higher state of growth. The subject of discussion this afternoon is this internal man. No question is so near and dear to man's heart as that of the internal man. How many millions of times, in how many countries, has this question been asked? Sages and kings, rich and poor, saints and sinners, every man, every woman, all have from time to time asked this question. Is there nothing permanent in this evanescent human life? Is there nothing, they have asked, which does not die away when this body dies? Is there not something living when this frame crumbles into dust? Is there not something which survives the fire which burns the body into ashes? And if so, what is its destiny? Where does it go? Whence did it come? These questions have been asked again and again. And so long as this creation lasts... So long as there are human brains to think, this question will have to be asked. Yet it is not that the answer did not come, each time the answer came, and as time rolls on, the answer will gain strength more and more. The question was answered once for all thousands of years ago, and through all subsequent time, it is being restated re-illustrated, made clearer to our intellect. What we have to do, therefore, is to make a restatement of the answer. We do not pretend to throw any new light on these all-absorbing problems, but only to put before you the ancient truth in the language of modern times, to speak the thoughts of the ancients in the language of the moderns, To speak the thoughts of the philosophers in the language of the people. To speak the thoughts of the angels in the language of man. To speak the thoughts of God in the language of poor humanity so that man will understand them. For the same divine essence from which the ideas emanated is ever present in man. And therefore he can always understand them. I am looking at you, how many things are necessary for this vision. First the eyes, for if I am perfect in every other way, and yet have no eyes, I shall not be able to see you. Secondly, the real organ of vision, for the eyes are not the organs, they are but the instruments of vision, and behind them is the real organ, the nerve centre in the brain. If that centre be injured, a man may have the clearest pair of eyes, yet he will not be able to see anything. So it is necessary that this centre, or the real organ, be there. Thus with all our senses, the external ear is but the instrument for carrying the vibration of sound inward to the centre, yet that is not sufficient. Suppose in your library you're intently reading a book and the clock strikes, yet you do not hear it. The sound is there, the pulsations in the air are there, the ear and the centre are also there, and these vibrations have been carried through the ear to the centre, and yet you do not hear it. What is wanting? The mind is not there. Thus we see that the third thing necessary is that the mind must be there. First the external instruments, then the organ to which this external instrument will carry the sensation, and lastly the organ itself must be joined to the mind. When the mind is not joined to the organ, the organ and the ear may take the impression and yet we shall not be conscious of it. The mind, too, is only the carrier. It has to carry the sensation still forward and present it to the intellect. The intellect is the determining faculty and decides upon what is brought to it. Still this is not sufficient. The intellect must carry it forward and present the whole thing before the ruler in the body, the human soul, the king on the throne. Before him this is presented, and then from him comes the order, what to do or what not to do, and the order goes down in the same sequence to the intellect, to the mind, to the organs, and the organs convey it to the instruments, and the perception is complete. The instruments are in the external body, the gross body of man. But the mind and the intellect are not. They are in what is called in Hindu philosophy the finer body and what in Christian theology you read of as the spiritual body of man, finer, very much finer than the body and yet not the soul. The soul is beyond them all. The external body perishes in a few years. Any simple cause may disturb and destroy it. The finer body is not so easily perishable, yet it sometimes degenerates and at other times becomes strong. We see how, in the old man, the mind loses its strength, how when the body is vigorous, the mind becomes vigorous. How various medicines and drugs affect it, how everything external acts on it, and how it reacts on the external world. Just as the body has its progress and decadence, so also has the mind, and therefore the mind is not the soul, because the soul can neither decay nor degenerate. How can we know that? How can we know that there is something behind this mind? Because knowledge which is self-illuminating and the basis of intelligence cannot belong to dull, dead matter. Never was seen any gross matter which had intelligence as its own essence. No dull or dead matter can illumine itself. It is intelligence that illumines all matter. This hall is here only through intelligence, because, as a hall, its existence would be unknown unless some intelligence built it. This body is not self-luminous. If it were, it would be so in a dead man also. Neither can the mind nor the spiritual body be self-luminous. They are not of the essence of intelligence. That which is self-luminous cannot decay. The luminosity of that which shines through a borrowed light comes and goes. But that which is light itself, what can make that come and go, flourish and decay? We see that the moon waxes and wanes because it shines through the borrowed light of the sun. If a lump of iron is put into the fire and made red hot, it glows and shines, but its light will vanish because it is borrowed. So decadence is possible only of that light which is borrowed and is not of its own essence. Now we see that the body, the external shape, has no light as its own essence, is not self-luminous and cannot know itself. Neither can the mind. Why not? Because the mind waxes and wanes, because it is vigorous at one time and weak at another, because it can be acted upon by anything and everything. Therefore, the light which shines through the mind is not its own. Whose is it, then? It must belong to that which has it as its own essence, and as such can never decay or die never becomes stronger or weaker. It is self-luminous. It is luminosity itself. It cannot be that the soul knows, but it is knowledge. It cannot be that the soul has existence, but it is existence. It cannot be that the soul is happy, it is happiness itself. That which is happy has borrowed its happiness, That which has knowledge has received its knowledge, and that which has relative existence has only a reflected existence. Wherever there are qualities, these qualities have been reflected upon the substance. But the soul has not knowledge, existence and blessedness as its qualities. They are the essence of the soul. Again it may be asked, Why should we take this for granted? Why shall we admit that the soul has knowledge, blessedness, existence as its essence and has not borrowed them? It may be argued, why not say that the soul's luminosity, the soul's blessedness, the soul's knowledge are borrowed in the same way as the luminosity of the body is borrowed from the mind? The fallacy of arguing in this way will be that there will be no limit. From whom were these borrowed? If we say from some other source, the same question will be asked again. So at last we shall have to come to one who is self-luminous. To make matters short then, the logical way is to stop where we get self-luminosity and proceed no further. We see then that this human being is composed first of this external covering, the body, secondly, the finer body consisting of mind, intellect, and egoism. Behind them is the real self of man. We have seen that all the qualities and powers of the gross body are borrowed from the mind, and the mind, the finer body, borrows its powers and luminosity from the soul standing behind. A great many questions now arise about the nature of this soul. If the existence of the soul is drawn from the argument that it is self-luminous, that knowledge, existence, blessedness are its essence, it naturally follows that this soul cannot have been created A self-luminous existence, independent of any other existence, could never have been the outcome of anything. It always existed. There was never a time when it did not exist. Because if the soul did not exist, where was time? Time is in the soul. It is when the soul reflects its powers on the mind, and the mind thinks, that time comes. Where there was no soul, certainly there was no thought, and without thought there was no time. How can the soul, therefore, be said to be existing in time, when time itself exists in the soul? It has neither birth nor death, but is passing through all these various stages. It is manifesting slowly and gradually, from lower to higher, and so on. It is expressing its own grandeur, working through the mind on the body, and through the body it is grasping the external world and understanding it. It takes up a body and uses it, and when that body has failed and is used up, it takes up another body, and so on it goes. Here comes a very interesting question. That question which is generally known as the reincarnation of the soul. Sometimes people get frightened at the idea and superstition is so strong that thinking men even believe that they are the outcome of nothing and then, with the grandest logic, try to deduce the theory that although they have come out of zero They will be eternal ever afterwards. Those that come out of zero will certainly have to go back to zero. Neither you nor I nor anyone present has come out of zero or will go back to zero. We have been existing eternally and will exist and there is no power under the sun or above the sun which can undo your or my existence or send us back to zero. Now this idea of reincarnation is not only not a frightening idea, but is most essential for the moral well-being of the human race. It is the only logical conclusion that thoughtful men can arrive at. If you are going to exist in eternity hereafter, it must be, that you have existed through eternity in the past. It cannot be otherwise. I will try to answer a few objections that are generally brought against the theory. Although many of you will think that they are very silly objections, still we have to answer them, for sometimes we find that the most thoughtful men are ready to advance the silliest ideas. Well has it been said that there never was an idea so absurd that it did not find philosophers to defend it. The first objection is, why do we not remember our past? Do we remember all our past in this life? How many of you remember what you did when you were babies? None of you remember your early childhood. And if upon memory depends your existence, then this argument proves that you did not exist as babies because you do not remember your babyhood. It is simply unmitigated nonsense to say that our existence depends on our remembering it. Why should we remember the past? That brain is gone, broken into pieces, and a new brain has been manufactured. What has come to this brain is the resultant, the sum total of the impressions acquired in our past, with which the mind has come to inhabit the new body. I, as I stand here, am the effect, the result of all the infinite past which is tacked to me. And why is it necessary for me to remember all the past? When a great ancient sage, a seer, or a prophet of old, who came face to face with the truth, says something. These modern men stand up and say, Oh, he was a fool. But just use another name, Huxley says it, or Tyndall, then it must be true, and they take it for granted. In place of ancient superstitions, they have erected modern superstitions. In place of the old popes of religion, they have installed modern popes of science. So we see that this objection as to memory is not valid, and that it is about the only serious objection that is raised against this theory. Although we have seen that it is not necessary for the theory that there shall be memory of past lives, yet at the same time we are in a position to assert that there are instances which show that this memory does come and that each one of us will get back this memory in that life in which he will become free. Then alone you will find that this world is but a dream. Then alone you will realise in the soul of your soul that you are but actors and the world is a stage. Then alone will the idea of non-attachment come to you with the power of thunder. Then all this thirst for enjoyment, this clinging on to life and this world, will vanish forever. Then the mind will see clearly as daylight how many times all these existed for you. How many millions of times you had fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, husbands and wives. Relatives and friends, wealth and power. They came and went. How many times you were on the topmost crest of the wave, and how many times you were down at the bottom of despair. When memory will bring all these to you, then alone will you stand as a hero, and smile when the world frowns upon you. Then alone will you stand up and say, I care not for thee even, O death. What terrors hast thou for me? This will come to all. Are there any arguments, any rational proofs for this reincarnation of the soul? So far, we have been giving the negative side, showing that the opposite arguments to disprove it are not valid. Are there any positive proofs? There are, and most valid ones too. No other theory except that of reincarnation accounts for the wide divergence that we find between man and man in their powers to acquire knowledge. First, let us consider the process by means of which knowledge is acquired. Suppose I go into the street and see a dog. How do I know it is a dog? I refer it to my mind. And in my mind are groups of all my past experiences, arranged and pigeonholed as it were. As soon as a new impression comes, I take it up and refer it to some of the old pigeonholes. And as soon as I find a group of the same impressions already existing, I place it in that group, and I am satisfied. I know it is a dog, because it coincides with impressions already there. When I do not find the cognate of this new experience inside, I become dissatisfied. When, not finding the cognates of an impression, we become dissatisfied. This state of mind is called ignorance. But, When finding the cognates of an impression already existing, we become satisfied. This is called knowledge. When one apple fell, men became dissatisfied. Then gradually they found out the group. What was the group they found? That all apples fell. So they called it gravitation. Now we see that without a fund of already existing experience any new experience would be impossible for there would be nothing to which to refer the new impression. So if, as some of the European philosophers think a child came into the world with what they call tabula rasa such a child would never attain to any degree of intellectual power because he would have nothing to which to refer his new experiences. We see that the power of acquiring knowledge varies in each individual, and this shows that each one of us has come with his own fund of knowledge. Knowledge can only be got in one way, the way of experience. There is no other way to know, if we have not experienced it in this life, we must have experienced it in other lives. How is it that the fear of death is everywhere? A little chicken is just out of an egg, and an eagle comes, and the chicken flies in fear to its mother. There is an old explanation, I should hardly dignify it by such a name. It is called instinct. What makes that little chicken just out of the egg, afraid to die? How is it that as soon as a duckling hatched by a hen comes near water, it jumps into it and swims? It never swam before, nor saw anything swim. People call it instinct. It is a big word, but it leaves us where we were before. Let us study this phenomenon of instinct. A child begins to play on the piano. At first, she must pay attention to every key she is fingering. And as she goes on and on for months and years, the playing becomes almost involuntary, instinctive. What was first done with conscious will does not require later on an effort of the will. This is not yet a complete proof. One half remains, and that is, that almost all the actions which are now instinctive can be brought under the control of the will. Each muscle of the body can be brought under control. This is perfectly well known. So the proof is complete by this double method. What we now call instinct is degeneration of voluntary actions. Therefore, if the analogy applies to the whole of creation... If all nature is uniform, then what is instinct in lower animals, as well as in men, must be the degeneration of will. Applying the law we dwelt upon under macrocosm, that each involution presupposes an evolution, and each evolution an involution, we see that instinct is involved reason. What we call instinct in men or animals must therefore be involved degenerated voluntary actions and voluntary actions are impossible without experience. Experience started that knowledge and that knowledge is there. The fear of death, the duckling taking to the water and all involuntary actions in the human being which have become instinctive are the result of past experiences. So far we have proceeded very clearly, and so far the latest science is with us. But here comes one more difficulty. The latest scientific men are coming back to the ancient sages, and as far as they have done so, there is perfect agreement. They admit that each man and each animal is born with a fund of experience, and that all these actions in the mind are the result of past experience. But what, they ask, is the use of saying that that experience belongs to the soul. Why not say it belongs to the body and the body alone? Why not say it is hereditary transmission? This is the last question. Why not say that all experience with which I am born is the resultant effect of all past experience of my ancestors? The sum total of the experience, from the little protoplasm up to the highest human being, is in me, but it has come from body to body in the course of hereditary transmission. Where will the difficulty be? This question is very nice, and we admit some part of this hereditary transmission. How far? As far as furnishing the material, we, by our past actions, conform ourselves to a certain birth in a certain body, and the only suitable material for that body comes from the parents who have made themselves fit to have that soul as their offspring the simple hereditary theory takes for granted the most astonishing proposition without any proof that mental experience can be recorded in matter that mental experience can be involved in matter when I look at you in the lake of my mind there is a wave that wave subsides but it remains in fine form as an impression We understand a physical impression remaining in the body, but what proof is there for assuming that the mental impression can remain in the body, since the body goes to pieces? What carries it? Even granting it were possible for each mental impression to remain in the body, that every impression, beginning from the first man down to my father, was in my father's body, how could it be transmitted to me? Through the bioplasmic cell, how could that be? Because the father's body does not come to the child in toto. The same parents may have a number of children, then, from this theory of hereditary transmission, where the impression and the impressed, that is to say material, are one, it rigorously follows that by the birth of every child, the parents must lose a part of their own impressions, or if the parents should transmit the whole of their impressions, then after the birth of the first child, their minds would be a vacuum. Again, if in the bioplasmic cell, the infinite amount of impressions from all time has entered, where and how is it? This is the most impossible position and until these physiologists can prove how and where these impressions live in that cell and what they mean by a mental impression sleeping in the physical cell, their position cannot be taken for granted. So far it is clear then that this impression is in the mind, that the mind comes to take its birth and rebirth and uses the material which is most proper for it, and that the mind which has made itself fit for only a particular kind of body will have to wait until it gets that material. This we understand. The theory then comes to this, that there is hereditary transmission so far as furnishing the material to the soul is concerned. But the soul migrates and manufactures body after body and each thought we think and each deed we do is stored in it in fine forms ready to spring up again and take a new shape when I look at you a wave rises in my mind it dives down as it were and becomes finer and finer but it does not die It is ready to start up again as a wave in the shape of memory. So all these impressions are in my mind. And when I die, the resultant force of them will be upon me. A ball is here, and each one of us takes a mallet in his hands and strikes the ball from all sides. The ball goes from point to point in the room, and when it reaches the door, it flies out what does it carry out with it the resultant of all these blows that will give it its direction so what directs the soul when the body dies the resultant the sum total of all the works it has done of the thoughts it has thought if the resultant is such that it has to manufacture a new body for further experience. It will go to those parents who are ready to supply it with suitable material for that body. Thus, from body to body it will go, sometimes to a heaven and back to earth, becoming man or some lower animal. This way it will go on until it has finished its experience and completed the circle. It then knows its own nature, knows what it is, and ignorance vanishes. Its powers become manifest, it becomes perfect. No more is there any necessity for the soul to work through physical bodies, nor is there any necessity for it to work through finer or mental bodies. It shines in its own light and is free, no more to be born, No more to die. We will not go now into the particulars of this, but I will bring before you one more point with regard to this theory of reincarnation. It is the theory that advances the freedom of the human soul. It is the one theory that does not lay the blame of all our weakness upon somebody else, which is a common human fallacy. We do not look at our own faults. The eyes do not see themselves. They see the eyes of everybody else. We human beings are very slow to recognize our own weakness, our own faults, so long as we can lay the blame upon somebody else. Men in general lay all the blame of life on their fellow men, or failing that, on God Or they conjure up a ghost and say it is fate. Where is fate? And who is fate? We reap what we sow. We are the makers of our own fate. None else has the blame. None else has the praise. The wind is blowing. Those vessels whose sails are unfurled catch it and go forward on their way. But those which have their sails furled do not catch the wind. Is that the fault of the wind? Is it the fault of the merciful Father whose wind of mercy is blowing without ceasing day and night, whose mercy knows no decay? Is it his fault that some of us are happy and some unhappy? We make our own destiny. His sun shines for the weak as well as for the strong. His wind blows for the saint and sinner alike. He is the Lord of all, the Father of all, merciful and impartial. Do you mean to say that he, the Lord of creation, looks upon the petty things of our life in the same light as we do? What a degenerate idea of God that would be. We are like little puppies, making life and death struggles here, and foolishly thinking that even God Himself will take it as seriously as we do. He knows what the puppies' play means. Our attempts to lay the blame on Him, making Him the punisher and the rewarder, are only foolish. He neither punishes nor rewards any. His infinite mercy is open to everyone. At all times, in all places, under all conditions, unfailing, unswerving. Upon us depends how we use it. Upon us depends how we utilise it. Blame neither man, nor God, nor anyone in the world. When you find yourself suffering, blame yourselves and try to do better. This is the only solution of the problem. Those that blame others, and alas, the number of them is increasing every day, are generally miserable with helpless brains. They have brought themselves to that pass through their own mistakes and blame others. But this does not alter their position. It does not serve them in any way. This attempt to throw the blame upon others only weakens them the more. Therefore, Blame none for your own faults. Stand upon your own feet and take the whole responsibility upon yourselves. Say, This misery that I am suffering is of my own doing and that very thing proves that it will have to be undone by me alone. That which I created I can demolish. That which is created by someone else I shall never be able to destroy. Therefore, stand up, be bold, be strong. Take the whole responsibility on your own shoulders and know that you are the creator of your own destiny. All the strength and succour you want is within yourselves. Therefore, make your own future. Let the dead past bury its dead. The infinite future is before you and you must always remember that each word, thought and deed lays up a store for you and that as the bad thoughts and bad works are ready to spring upon you like tigers so also there is the inspiring hope that the good thoughts and good deeds are ready with the power of a hundred thousand angels to defend you always and forever.